Good morning, church. Uh, I have the honor to introduce our storyteller this morning. And I'll tell you, nothing makes you feel older than when you remember somebody who is, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper who's now kind of a grown adult, right? You see those kids growing up. And uh, so that's that feeling for me. Maybe some of you are looking at me and be like, I remember that was you, right? Um, but our guest speaker, our guest um, storyteller this morning is Daniel Guest. Uh, Daniel grew up in the church. He is entering his last year at Northwestern University in Chicago or just north of Chicago. So close to North Park, yet so far away. Um, but Daniel is in marketing, and he has a great story for us this morning. So let's w- welcome up Daniel Guest, please. Good morning, church. Good morning. Um, thank you, Ben, for the introduction. Um, as Ben said, I've been a part of this congregation for the better part of 20 years. I graduated from Mercer Island High School. Um, and if I don't look too familiar, that's because I've been at Northwestern for the past three years. Uh, we're about to finish my last year there, um, where I'm studying, as he said, marketing and communication. So I guess public speaking is now kind of my thing. So if on your pamphlet you have any feedback you want to leave or a letter grade, uh, could at least mentally boost my GPA. Um, I have to say I've really enjoyed my time at Northwestern. Um, I've made a lot of friends, a lot of connections I see lasting for a very long time. Um, but it is hard being at a very competitive university where everyone has a lot of commitments and it's really hard to keep track of your friends um, and to stay in communication and see where they're at um, given the many, many obligations that we all have. Um, one of my obligations that I have is I work as a supervisor of the student staff at the, uh, at the student center on campus. Um, and that's kind of where my story begins. Um, Last March, I was in the student center, not on shift, working on yet another commitment. We were making a pitch for an app for an on-campus health initiative. Um, I believe it was March 14th. I'm in the student center. I'm working. I'm not on shift. We have a bunch of different people on this team in the same room. I'm Photoshopping who knows what. Um, And my phone starts going off, um, and I answer it. And I got the call that I've learned to fear since early on in high school and went on to college. Um, the voice said, this is the Northwestern Emergency Warning System. There is an active shooter on campus. Um, please take cover. This is not a drill. And the voice went on, um, but I didn't hear it. I hung up the phone, and I was running out the door. Um, and my peers said, what's going on? I said, there's a shooter. Close the door behind me. Um, so I ran down the hall to our office. Um, not many other people had gotten the call, so I came in, I saw my director, and I said, Do we, are we ready? And he said, yeah, follow the protocol. So um, the two supervisors who were on shift and myself spread out throughout the building, um, and we each locked down a floor, and I had to run to the student lounge and make the announcement to everyone who had their earbuds in, going around saying, please go into this room, go into the closet, go into the classroom, go into our office, just anywhere, take cover. Um, and so I secured, we secured the building. I went back to our classroom. Um, and I followed protocol. I, I closed the door. I turned off the lights. I had everyone hide. And I remember I stood next to the door, and I put my foot in the door wedge so that even if they tried to kick in the door, hopefully my leg would stop it. Um, um, we later found out that the event was a, was a hoax. It was what's called a swatting. Somebody had called in a threat that wasn't real. Um, but because of everyone's fast reactions on the phones, all sort of bad information was circulating. They said, he's now in this building, he's in this building, shots fired. Just a fleet of bad information that we were all receiving on our phones. Um, 
And all I could do was, was pray. I remember I prayed for the, for the city of Evanston, um, for the first responders to their quick actions, for my peers. I prayed to God for, for myself, for the strength to hold the door shut against this intruder. Um, and as everyone would say, the event wasn't real, but the emotions were. The terror and the fear and the helplessness that we all felt locked in that small room um, just can't be described. But even in that moment of intense terror, I could see God's work, God's hand, um, which is kind of funny. It was, it was in the phones. Every email chain, every group chat, every number I had from anyone in, in Evanston was calling everybody else saying, are you safe? Are you okay? I care about you. I love you. Um, and I can't remember the last time that I had that many people in my life so concerned about me and about each other. It was just absolute indiscriminate love. Um, people I had known since my first day on campus, my roommate, um, to people I'd maybe seen once or never before. Um, everybody checking in on each other. And when we got the all clear about an hour later and everyone walked out into the halls, people I'd never met before, just giving hugs to everyone else, so thankful to have everybody else in their life um, and so full of love for everybody. Um, and that followed me through the year. Months later when I'd be sitting alone in a hallway on the floor with a failed exam, or I'd be laying on the sideline of the soccer field thinking I injured my knee for the very last time. Um, I could always look up and hear God saying, are you safe? Are you okay? And a lot of time I had to say, no, I'm not, but I will be. And thank you for listening to my story. Uh, this morning, our scripture reading comes from the book of Acts. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 1 through 29 from chapter 15, the New International Version. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised, according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name for the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. 
After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Things from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who return to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues and on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, Galbersabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The, the apostles, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Daniel, for your story and reading our scripture this morning. Uh, if you are K through 5, you get to leave because apparently it's going to get boring in here, Joseph. Um, thought I wasn't that bad last time. Um, so you are dismissed. Uh, you have the, the sign to follow there with Pastor Elise, back with pa uh, Teacher Dave. Well, good morning, church. Um, this morning, I don't have any children's stories uh, about fish and kisses. Um, but what I want you to do for a moment is to imagine a person that you know, maybe it could be a family member, a friend, a coworker, somebody who currently doesn't walk with, with the Lord, and imagine that they have um, somehow, through some means, God reached out to them and uh, grace has been received and, and they've accepted the Lord as their Savior and, and they are now a, a convert to Christianity. Now, I want you to imagine what a new convert can be like. And if you're having a hard time thinking about that, then maybe just think about somebody who recently joined a CrossFit gym or is now uh, 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 on a new diet like vegan or keto, right? Uh, it takes all of two seconds before they tell you about how great their life is now that they're joined this new gym or on this new diet or have this new fad, um, so this newly convert to Christianity, uh, they're fired up, right? And they start reading their, their Bible. Uh, most likely in today's society, we, we can't take, uh, we, we can't assume that they actually know much about Scripture as our, our culture is becoming less and less Christian. And so pretty soon this person starts to read through Scripture and they start to notice some of the themes and traits throughout the Old Testament, as they start with Genesis, you know, it's the beginning of the book. We'll start with there. They notice Adam and Noah, Abraham. They see these words about covenant and God's special relationship with people and their offspring. And they notice that circumcision begins to be a pretty rampant theme throughout the Old Testament and something really important to God. 
So important, in fact, that in Exodus chapter 4, after God has already revealed himself to Moses, God is on the cusp of killing Moses because he hadn't had his son circumcised. Thankfully, Moses' wife was uh, quick on her feet and quick and uh, grabbed her son and, and did a, a circumcision, which I, I don't know how, how well that one went. But the point is that God was satisfied with the circumcision and Moses was, hand, Moses was able to continue living. This person reads through and unlike many of us, doesn't skip Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but actually starts to read through the laws of the Old Testament and uh, all 613 of them uh, as counted by one rabbi in the Middle, Middle Ages. And this person continues to read about the prophets and the kings and the call for repentance, justice, and mercy. And this person's, as they're reading throughout the scriptures, a, a tension starts to rise within them, and maybe it's a tension that some of us feel as well. The basic tension is something like, perhaps, how, are I, how are, am I supposed to relate to the law? Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Are we supposed to follow these Old Testament laws? If not, all of them, are there some of them that are more important than others that we should be following? What, what's my relationship to that like? And this is, in a sense, what our Christian forefathers and foremothers were wrestling with here in Jerusalem in Acts 15. The, the kind of pressing question is to what extent is the church supposed to accommodate the various cultural and moral issues in our surrounding culture? And to what extent do we as the church ask converts to conform to the ways of the church? Now, this is a tension that had been going on in Israel for some time. And the church, seeing itself as an extension of Israel, continued to ask these questions. Do you need to look like a Jew in order to follow God? Or is there, something, is there another way that you can follow God without having to look and act Jewish? As we see in this chapter, and actually through all of Luke's both gospel, the gospel of Luke, and his book, The Acts of the Apostles, we see that he, as most of the early disciples felt, they saw there a continuity between Israel's mission to be a blessing to the world and now the church taking up that mantle after Christ ascended back to heaven. We can say that based on Luke's gospel and Acts, Luke and the early church see the mission of the, to the Gentiles as a continuation of Israel's mission to draw all nations to gather and worship Yahweh. That was Israel's original intent. But this question of integration seems especially pertinent and, and pressing for us as many of the givens of our Christian culture here in the West are not so much given anymore. Think about this within our own church and asking and wrestling with this question of accommodating the culture. Not too long after Pastor Peter came, he made a decision with the elder or with the, the leadership team to remove the part of the service of the offering plate, right? 
Everybody pass, pass the plate around. Everybody pulls out their wallet or their checkbook, right? Pastor Peter thought, this is a moment in the service that somebody who doesn't normally go to church might feel really awkward, might feel like the church is just asking for a handout. And so rather than doing that, we installed the offering boxes in the back, and you can obviously give online as well. But the point is that if you are not accustomed to the church culture, this might be a, a barrier for you feeling comfortable within the church. So that's one way that our church has discerned in this, in this moment a way to accommodate for those outside of the church to feel more welcomed here. But it goes beyond that. And notice here in Acts 15 that there are actually a plethora of options given for what to do with integrating Gentiles into this new Jewish, now Christian kind of faith. We have three potential options kind of on the spectrum, if you will. The first one comes from the conservative Pharisaic group. And they say that, no, you must be circumcised in order to be saved, and you must follow the whole of the law of Moses. The second one, on the other side, uh, the, the second option is, no, 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 you're saved by grace. This is what Peter says in verse 11. Saved by grace. No need to follow the law at this point. The third option, a kind of middle ground, is what comes out in verse 29 where it says, saved by grace, yes, but abstain from food sacrificed to idols, abstain from blood, abstain from uh, strangled meat and sexual immorality. A kind of middle way, if you will. So there are kind of two main points that I, I want to make today about this decision. The first is the how. How does the church, or how did the church at this time, come to the decision of what they did to deem moving forward? And the second one has to do with the content of the decision, the whatness of it. So the first point, how... Uh, the first point about how this crisis is resolved. Now, this, this, this discussion actually has several uh, important issues for us. The first one is that this discussion about whether Gentiles need to follow the law or whether they need to be circumcised or whether they, can, they should eat, need to eat kosher, that all was an extremely divisive and hot-button issue of the day. The issue comes up with Paul's letter to the Galatians. It comes up several times in what are known as the Catholic epistles, the epistles to all of the churches. And, and it really could have fractured the church early on. Pastor Bud several weeks ago said that there was no point in church's history where Christians weren't arguing about things. There's no kind of golden era where everyone kind of got along and didn't have a disagreement. Even in the Acts of the Apostles, they are disagreeing over these issues. But notice that the disciples gather in Jerusalem to discuss the matter and gets resolved. As Luke tells in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So we're going to stop right there for a moment because that's a key phrase right there. Because this is the early church blueprint about how the church is to move ahead in an ever-changing world. Notice that it is by both the Holy Spirit and by us, in this case, the elders and apostles who gathered together in Jerusalem. They discern together in community with the Holy Spirit what ought to be established and done. Now, I, for one, take great comfort in that 
But I also recognize that it's an immense responsibility and somewhat of a burden as well, relying on the Holy Spirit. That actually is one of the covenant denominations' uh, affirmations, continual conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit. We as a denomination don't have uh, many creeds that we hold to as many other churches do, but we have what are called affirmations. And one of them is a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout Acts, our disciples and apostles are dependent on the Holy Spirit. Paul is led by the Spirit in certain places to go do ministry. And in fact, in one story, he's on his way to go one where and the Spirit stops him from entering that land and tells him to turn around. You see, with the baptism of Philip, baptizing the, the Ethiopian man, right after he baptizes him, the Spirit whisks him away in some kind of, I don't know, teleportation, beam me up Scotty type scenario, I don't know. But the Spirit's power is present throughout the Acts of the Apostles. And here, as to, and it continues in today's church, that the church must discuss and discern with the Holy Spirit what ought to be done. And I don't know how many of you have ever been to a church meeting either here or at another church or maybe a, a national or global level, uh, but oftentimes it can feel somewhat businesslike. Now, I'm not trying to disparage business meetings or the process because rules and order are really important. But I do think that if we treat church meetings and discussions more as business meetings than we do as opportunities to worship and hear from the living God, we will often miss the point. And to be honest, when we think about the hot-button issues in today's culture, in today's church, whether it's worship styles or certain beliefs, whether it's about inclusion of LGBT people or more, when I think about the way that the church disagrees about these issues, I don't know how they'll be solved, but I do know that if we don't depend on the Holy Spirit, we will almost certainly get them wrong. I also take great comfort in this passage specifically because of how divisive the issue was. Now, circumcision might not seem like that big of a deal to you. Eating kosher might not seem like a, a, a big deal to you, but it was to them. And if I'm being honest, being part of some of the bigger national conversations about some of these hot button issues in our church and the church at large, seeing friends and colleagues who vehemently disagree with one another and how divisive those conversations can be, I can despair. I look at people on various sides of the debate and I see how entrenched they are in their position. And I see, and I, and I look into the future and I say, there has to be another split coming. There's no way that we can reconcile. People are just too dug in on their own position. I wonder if the apostles ever felt like that back in Acts 15. But what a passage like this does for me, what it tells me, is that the church has been fighting tooth and nail for 2,000 centuries, and that sometimes, and sometimes over issues basically since Jesus has descended to heaven. I take comfort in knowing that together with the Holy Spirit, we can move forward together, offering a solution that provides unity for the church as a whole. That's the how piece. God designed the body of Christ to work in partnership with the Holy Spirit to discern what is good, what is good for this time and this place. And it's the Spirit's eternal wisdom 
that keeps us from unraveling into some kind of perpetually relativistic ethic, right? Well, it seems good now, so let's just kind of jump into it. No, 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 no. This isn't just pure relativism. Jesus gives a warning against that in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the church being the salt of the world, right? He says, you are the salt of the world, but he does warn you that you can lose your saltiness and then you're good for nothing except for being thrown out and trampled upon. You, we lose our saltiness as the church the moment we stop depending on the Holy Spirit. When we start relying on our own strength, our own creativity, our own ambition, or whatever other adjectives you want to throw in there, rather than being in partnership with the Spirit. All right, that's the how piece. Now for the what. Notice that there are four things here that are recommended that Gentiles abstain from. Food sacrificed to idols, food that's been strangled, don't eat blood, and sexual immorality. It's interesting that these are four categories that the bodies of believers felt was important to keep no matter what culture you were a part of. Interestingly, if you want a specific discussion on the issue of food sacrifice to idols, you can look in Corinthians, where Paul spends the better part of three chapters wrestling with the Corinthians about whether it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols or not. Ultimately, Paul umbrellas that discussion under a greater discussion of freedom in Christ, where he says, yes, you are free to eat that, but is it beneficial to the body? Are you using your freedom wisely? So I'd say this, in a highly individualistic society like ours, where we honor and uphold individual rights, we affirm that. You as an individual have rights. You as an individual have value and worth. But when you flaunt those rights as a, of an individual at the detriment of the community, that's not only harmful, that's sinful. In the church, we neither lose our individual identities in some kind of Marxist group identity, nor do we dissolve into some kind of atomistic, radical, libertarian individualism. The church always acknowledges and honors the person and the community together. So why these four commands? What's so special or pertinent about these things? Well, of the options I laid out, the spectrum of uh, a more conservative, a middle way, and a liberal point of view, our Pharisees, the conservative group here, wanted the Gentiles, to adhere to the whole of the law. And not only the whole of the law, but also what we call halakha, or the interpretations of those 613 laws. So not only do you have to keep the 613 laws in the Old Testament, but all the ways that you're supposed to keep those in the Old Testament. The other position on the far liberal position would be what's known as an antinomial or anti-law position. And we know that some Christians actually do try to take this because we see the apostles in their letters in the New Testament reject this. Say, well, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Woohoo! Spring break 24 7 or something. I don't know, right? As if to say that following God and following Jesus doesn't mean that there's a certain set of behaviors and standards that we're supposed to adhere to. The church also rejects this. No, instead, the church chooses a middle way. And let me suggest that the final decision given has within it 
the great commands of Jesus' summarization in the Gospels within its mind. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, and in doing these things, you will fulfill the law. At no point does Jesus or the New Testament writers, or even the early church fathers for that matter, think it's a good idea to disregard the law of the Old Testament. Even in a book like Galatians, where Paul is pitting the law and grace against each other, seemingly, Paul doesn't want to do away with the law, but understand its proper, uh, proper effects. The desire to throw out the law and parts of the Old Testament, in fact, was an early church heresy known as Marcionism. Okay, named Marcion, so if you come up with a new idea, it usually gets named after you. Marcion comes up with this idea and says, you know what, now that we have Jesus in, the, in our picture, we don't need the Old Testament. In fact, we should probably get rid of it because it's, it's too burdensome. And while we're at it, let's get rid of some of Paul too because he sounds kind of too Jewish and, and law-abiding. So let's get rid of all that. No, no, no. The early church roundly rejects that. Let me give you a possible reason why we need to hold on to the Old Testament and the Old Testament laws. I want you to think of our faith as, as a plant, a flowering plant, right? Now, if you cut that plant and put it in a vase, it'll last for a few days, but eventually it'll wilt and die, and it'll decompose and transform into something else. Our faith is much like that plant. In fact, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? We must abide in Christ. Part of abiding in Christ is abiding in that Old Testament. That Old Testament is the roots that keep us grounded, that keep us nurtured, that keep us alive, if we are to cut off the Old Testament and those laws, we will, our, our faith will eventually wilt and decompose and transform into something else. I had a professor who used to tell me all the time that if you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand the Old Testament because Jesus quotes the Old Testament all the time. Psalms is quoted something like 70 times in the New Testament. Genesis is quoted 30, 35. Deuteronomy is quoted all the time. Jesus and the early disciples are very involved in discussions of the Old Testament. We can't simply throw it out. And if you notice throughout the Acts of the Apostles, what does, Peter, what, what does Paul do when he comes into a new town? He goes to the synagogue and he argues with the Pharisees and the Jews using the law as a way, as a means to describe and explain the role of Christ. It's illuminating Christ using the Old Testament. The Old Testament was, and the Torah was, the earliest means of evangelism. Now, there are a variety of possible reasons why these four laws are chosen. But the decision ultimately comes down not to salvation, but to sociology. The church says, yes, you can eat these things. Yes, you can do this and quote, unquote, still technically be saved. But is it beneficial for the larger community? So the point, the council, the point is this. The council took note of their Jewish brothers and sisters who had for centuries held on to certain cultural codes and assumed that they weren't going to drop those cultural codes overnight. They took in, as Paul, as Paul says in Corinthians, the, the notion of their weaker brother and sister into their decision-making process. And they said that salvation is important. At this point, our decision, the highest priority is the unity of the body. And so for that sake, even though you might not think it's gross, abstain from it. <clears throat> in closing, I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts about 
about the church and disagreements in modern times. I think this is especially pertinent for us in, in Protestant churches because we all know that there are a lot of churches out there. In fact, there are thousands of Protestant denominations and countless more non-denominational churches. And we in the Protestant churches have a tendency to know that if we disagree with somebody about a worship style or a theological position or maybe just the way people dress or wear or what they wear, I can pick up my ball or I can pick up my checkbook and I can go, go down the road and find another church. Heck, maybe that's how you got here. I don't know. But I would suggest that that is, by and large, a very harmful attitude to have. I would make it liken into entering into a marriage knowing that you have an out if, you're, if your spouse annoys you after a few years. So, why, why hold on to this? Why stay in a church that you may disagree with? Well, the Acts of the Apostles did. It gives them the opportunity to, re, to have to be reliant on the Holy Spirit, right? For those of you who are married, you know that if you're staying with your spouse, you have to rely on the Holy Spirit to not want to get out of that at some points when it gets hard. It gives us the opportunity to rely on the Spirit. It gives us the opportunity to sit and worship together and learn to coexist with one another despite differences. And I'm not trying to gloss over the differences here. I'm not trying to say that these differences aren't important. They are. They're very important. But how much more powerful is it to be able to say, I vehemently disagree with you about this on this specific issue, but I can still worship with you. I can still say we serve the, the one God together, and I can still do mission with you. That's an actual gift wrapped up in a big old headache and frustration. And given that there is a long theological tradition, I would say, that nuclear families are actually small little outposts of the church held up in, in various communities and neighborhoods and schools and, and businesses and communities... I would argue that these principles for arguments bode well for the family as well. And I don't know, maybe you'll go to that, that marriage seminar in a couple of weeks and I'll be completely off on this and we'll see then, but we'll, I, I, I doubt it. So here are some principles for disagreement within the church that we find from Acts 15. The first one is to discern your motives for your disagreements. I mean, I could stop right there because I think that would probably solve about 95% of our arguments, right? Are you disagreeing with somebody in the church? Are you disagreeing with your spouse or a friend because it's a power play or a personal preference? Or because you actually feel convicted by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit that this is the truth? Are you pursuing truth or are you pursuing being right? Second, present disagreements often have a history. Don't think that for a second that the arguments of today about worship styles, communion, inclusion of LGBT people, or anything else doesn't have a backstory to it. In fact, even in the arguments in, in Acts 15, there are extra-biblical texts from the time period of Jewish communities arguing about what a Gentile convert to Judaism actually needed to adhere to, 
The argument in Acts 15 didn't start in Acts 14, folks. And your argument about communion or worship or with your spouse didn't start up last night. Know that. Three, our primary authority is Scripture. Notice that throughout Acts 15, personal testimony by Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James, they're all given. And they're informative and they're influential, but they're not decisive. Ultimately, what we see in Acts is a constant appeal to Scripture to use as a framework to interpret the movement of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. We don't use our experience to interpret Scripture. We use Scripture to interpret our experience. Far too often, we get those reversed. We say, this is my experience. Now let me find a passage of Scripture to fit my experience. The Council of Jerusalem looked at Scripture as a whole and saw what God was prophesying and used that to overlay. Now I'm hearing this testimony from Paul and Barnabas. Does it fit? And the answer was, yes, it did. But if we use experience to, as a function for, for authority, we will spiral out of control into relativism rel relatively quickly. Fourth, find and affirm truth in both sides of the argument. The reality is that nobody comes to their belief because they want to be wrong. They see an element of truth in their, in their argument. It might not be the whole truth. It might be a sliver of truth, but there's something in their, in their belief system that led them to that. Figure out what that is and see if you can incorporate that into the greater decision. The, act, the, the, the Council of Jerusalem didn't completely reject the Pharisees in saying that we should follow the law. They said it's not based on salvation. It's not, it's not for the sake of salvation. But yes, we should follow some of these laws for the sake of, us, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you're arguing with somebody or disagreeing with them, the chances are they have some point of truth in there. Find out what it is and use it. Don't reject it. Finally, Present disagreements often have a post-history. As I mentioned, Paul takes up the issue of food sacrifice to idols in Corinthians later on in his ministry. Within the letter, different letters to the churches, the New Testament balances Paul's claims of being saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and a letter, say it like James, that calls us to live holy lives. It's not just one or the other. We need both voices. And just because you make a decision today about a disagreement doesn't mean it's not going to come up in the future. You can look throughout church history about the way that different heresies have been rejected and they crop back up in new and fancy forms. But the reality is we need both of those voices. We need the voice of James and we need the voice of Paul. We need the voice of Peter and the voice of Jesus. We need to hear and know that we are welcomed and accepted by God, but that that same God calls us to a, a standard to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And that to do so is to be on mission with God. To pursue and, uh, a pure life, holy living, and rejecting certain beliefs and behaviors that go against our new identity in Christ. And for the early church as it is today, idolatry is at the top of the list. Church, there are no easy answers to these divisive positions that people take. But we do have scripture, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the body of Christ to wrestle with, 
to disagree with at points, to work with and to rely on to guide us faithfully until Christ comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the way that you worked through imperfect people back in Acts, that you illuminated truth through various positions, that you gave us a spirit of unity, not a division. I pray that that spirit would be present in here with us today and continuing on at Evergreen, that we would be able to say, yes, I, I disagree with you, but I can still love and worship with you. I can still serve the holy God with you. God, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your body of Christ that strengthen us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.